Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 6, and we pick up in this marvelous study, and this is an amazing chapter. These next three chapters, Romans 6, 7, and 8, they're so practical in the Christian life, and uh, what we learn from them, they're useful to us. And I suppose that even as we come into this chapter, there are kind of two responses to a chapter like this, Romans 6 and its message. For some, these are just comforting words. These are like the foundation of your Christian life. These are words that bring joy to you and excitement and encouragement. For others of you, you may leave here feeling like you got sucker punched right in the face. Like, well, I was expecting something a little easier, something a little nicer, and this, this makes me feel miserable just in regards to the standard of God. And I, again, suppose that that is natural. It is natural when we have been redeemed out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light, that the transfer of that work of God rescuing us from the domain of darkness to light, it's a radical transformation. Sometimes in that process, some of we all come at different experiences in our Christian life and different ministries we're under, different levels of training and sanctification. And you may even be at a point where you are thinking to yourself, I should have been better at these things. I should have known more than what I have. And you come to chapter 6 and get beat up by it, and you're wondering, what's going on? Am I even a believer at all? It's in these reminders that Paul is teaching us about the process of sanctification. He's teaching us about what it looks like to be drawn into the image of God, to be more holy. And these are valuable lessons to us that will be useful for our entire Christian life. But the themes that Paul brings out in Romans 6, 7, and 8 are so useful in being conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. He focuses on these three chapters on three grand themes. Chapter 6 is the theme of grace and the work of grace. What does it look like for grace to be ruling and reigning among you? Then into chapter 7, he talks about the law. talks about the purpose of the law and the use of the law. He establishes that the law is holy, just, and good. The law is really good at what it does. It reveals sin. And it does a great job at it. But the law is useless in regards to transformation, and the law is useless in regards to salvation. The law only has the work of exposing sin. Then we move into chapter 8, and Paul talks about the Spirit of God. He talks about the work of the Spirit. Notice chapter 8, just a few passages that Paul demonstrates here. Chapter 8 and verse 2, he demonstrates this, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. We're under the spirit of God, the spirit of life. We're under the grace of God, ruling and reigning within us, and we're no longer under the law. Turn down to verse 4, he brings this out again, so that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. We are under the Spirit. The Spirit is guiding us. And as the Spirit rules and reigns within us, we certainly keep all the requirements of the law. But we're not under the law. Down in verse 5, 
For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Three themes, grace, law, and Spirit. In these three grand themes, Paul is teaching us about the doctrine and practice of sanctification. To be sanctified is to be set apart. It is to be made holy. We, when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, when we were rebellious, when we were unrighteous, unlovely, hostile... God regenerated us. He made us alive. We called out in faith upon Him. We believed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and we were at that moment justified. We were the moment of salvation when we confessed Jesus Christ as Lord and believed in our heart that God raised Him from the dead. At that moment, we were declared righteous by God, justified. Positionally before God, we were holy and righteous, looked upon by God as if we had lived Jesus Christ's perfect life. We were positionally holy, positionally perfect, without fault, without stain. We were holy and upright before God at the very moment of salvation. And now we are working to become practically what we are positionally in Christ. We're being set apart. Christ, God is at work within us, conforming us into the image of His Son. He is at work within us, separating us from the world, drawing us out of darkness into His light, demonstrating the riches of His grace in us and through us. And He is using, again, these very themes, the grace of God, and the understanding of the law, and the understanding of the Spirit to transform us. By the way, when he gets to chapter 7 and he brings out the law, he's going to demonstrate the usefulness of the law in exposing sin, but its inability to save and its weakness to set us apart. In fact, just by a little observation, read this week, chapter 7, and as you read it, look to what is being stated there, and what you won't see is this, Paul talking about how the law sanctifies. He just talks about what the law does. And how the law works. But he doesn't tell you what, how to use the law in this process of sanctifying us and setting us apart. Talk about more of that in the weeks to come. What's demonstrated here is there is something at work in the believer. Two particular powers that the believer has that God is demonstrating his rich work in that transforms the believer. And it's the role of grace. We see that here in chapter 6. And the role of the Spirit. We see that in chapter 8. What has grace done? Well, thus far is what we have seen. The grace of God has made us alive. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. God has made us alive with Christ. He's risen us from the dead. We're now alive in Him. We're walking through the grace of God. We will walk now in newness of life. And we live in this newness, anticipating the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We anticipate the arrival of Christ. We anticipate when He comes, we're going to be with Him. We're going to dwell with Him, reign with Him. We're going to see His glory. We anticipate the rich rewards that are going to come when Christ returns. And so we live in this newness of life. And verse 13 indicates this. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and notice, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. When we are raised up with Christ, we are alive with Him, we are now living in anticipation of this righteousness, and we are giving ourselves over to righteousness. Now Paul turns attention because of the question he brought up in verse 14 for sin shall not be master over you you are not under law but under grace the natural question would come out well then if i'm under grace the grace of god rules and i'm not under the commands any longer and i'm not under the law then should i just be able to live any way i want Just live freely because it's not the law that I'm under, but it's under grace. I can engage in evil, walk in evil, because it's grace ruling now in my life. To which Paul answers, of course, in verse 15, may it never be. We don't just live it up in sin because we're under grace. Instead, no, we have to have a different perspective. And that's what Paul lays out here from verse 16 and following, 16 through 23. He gives us four truths, four reminders. We saw the first two last week. The first reminder is this, that you have a new master and you're a good slave. You're a good slave and you serve a new master. That's what we saw in verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience... You are the slave of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. We are now slaves of obedience or slaves of righteousness. He makes that clear. Verse 18, having been freed from sin, notice, you became slaves of righteousness. We've been set free from sin, we are now slaves of righteousness. It says the same thing in verse 19, the end of verse 19. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness. And then again, down in verse 22, it says, or yeah, verse 20, yep, 22. Now having been freed from sin and, notice, enslaved to God. We have a new master, and this master is righteousness, and it is ruling within us. This is the one we listen to, and we are a slave to this new master. By the way, just as a helpful study for you, if you had time this week, read through the book of Romans. And note every time Paul refers to righteousness and the work of it. 35 times, from chapter 1 through chapter 16. The last reference is in chapter 4 and verse 17. 35 times Paul refers to righteousness. He talks about the righteousness of God being revealed in the gospel and the righteousness of God being revealed in judgment and the righteousness of God that comes to us by faith and the righteousness that is to be uh, our master uh, and that we're slaves to. Righteousness is essential to the Christian life. 
and essential to the gospel. And that's what Paul unfolds in the book of Romans here. We are under a new master. And again, this is imagery language. This is language that Paul is using as an illustration for us. We could have used uh, the term of a soldier to a commander, or we could use the idea of a student to a teacher, or a citizen to a government, or an employee to an employer. The idea is that we are under authority. We're under authority, and we follow that authority that we are under. The second truth that Paul brought out was in 17 and 18. The thing that we are to remember is that we are following our master's teaching. When he says this, that that thanks be to God, that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You embraced the truth and the truth conformed you. It worked in you, transforming you into the image of God. Now the last two truths. The next truth that Paul brings out, if we're under grace, here's the next thing we remind ourselves of. We remind ourselves of this, that we are walking in a new direction. Remember the direction of your life, verse 19. Notice how Paul states. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. Paul starts uh, with a parenthesis, parenthesis, uh, an idea there, the first sentence, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He's saying, I'm giving you an illustration here. That's what he's saying. I'm helping you understand the particular struggle, understand your relationship. Basically, I'm putting in human terms the spiritual truth. And the human terms of this is that sin operates as a master. And your obedience to that sin, you're operating as a slave. Sin was an evil master. Notice what it meant to be an evil, be under this evil master. Verse 19, 4 just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness. Sin acted as an evil master, directing us, leading us into evil, taking us into unrighteousness, conforming us into more unrighteousness, into wickedness. It operated as a sinful master, a master of destruction, But notice when we were under this master, what was engaged in it? He says there, uh, you presented your members as slaves. That is, your entire makeup was given over to this. Your hands, your eyes, your ears, your, your mouth, your mind, your heart, your will, your desires, your entire being was given over into this practice of evil, this evil master. And the result of that, giving over your entire being to unrighteousness, the result of it was more unrighteousness, further unrighteousness. Think about this, that sin isn't just contented with you joining it, it it desires to see you practicing it more and more. Brings you along, delivers you to evil. Think about this in light of what Peter said. In 1 Peter 4, Peter said in verses 3 and 4 this, you can listen, he says, 
for the time already past is sufficient for you to have carried out the desires of the Gentiles, having pursued a course of sensuality, lust, drunkenness, carousals, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. So he's saying, we used to practice all these things. We used to freely engage in all these things. Verse 4, and in all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excess of dissipation. They are surprised you don't regularly practice this evil. The evil hearts, the evil will, the evil desires draw us to further unrighteousness and wants us to go along with it. Peter says, that's the idea here in Romans 6, 19. We engaged in lawlessness because we were under this wicked master. It led us into sin only to produce more sin, more corruption, more destruction. But on the other hand, on contrast to that, it says, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. You see, the first hand, there is a reward for following unrighteousness, and the reward is more unrighteousness, more corruption, more wickedness. But when given to righteousness, there is a reward, and that reward is sanctification. The reward of practicing righteousness is holiness. There are fruits of following each path, and the path of this new master is righteousness. The path of the unrighteous master is wickedness. And you know how that works. Once you start to cross the line and you move into wickedness, it takes you further. Bitterness rules in the heart, and then anger rules, and then you lie, and then you cover your tracks, and then you start to think evil and pursue evil things, and then evil practices come out. Moving further and further away, sin draws you into more corruption. This is why the practice of sin is, can't be covered up by the believer because the sin isn't satisfied with you just sinning once. It draws from more corruption to more evil. That's why Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.13, he says, evil men and, in this word, imposters, those who come in pretending to be one thing but are something else, these evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. See, this is the difficult thing or the the dangerous thing of trying to uh, play with sin, thinking somehow you can carve out a little sin for your life and it's okay. It won't be satisfied staying small in your life. It grows, draws you into it to produce more corruption. Sin begets sin. And we know this experientially. You know this as well as I do, that when you draw a moral line in your life and then you step across that line just one step, the next time it's easier to go two steps. And the next time it's easier to go three or four steps. And the next time it's easier to go even further. And before you know it, it's taken over. Sin begets sin. Sin begets corruption. Sin makes it easier to commit more sin. And it's not satisfied leaving you where you're at. It wants to pull you in. But our other master is also seeking to draw you into its conformity. And the other master is drawing us into conformity to holiness, to righteousness. 
as freely as we can give into evil and move to corruption, so righteousness works and freely conforms us into holiness. That's what Paul brings out here. Verse 19, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification or resulting in holiness, being made holy. And it's, this is the idea. It's freely and as naturally as I gave myself entirely over to wickedness, we freely and naturally give ourselves over to righteousness. Our hearts, our minds, eyes, our ears, our hands, our feet, our whole being engaged in righteousness. And the pursuit of righteousness results in sanctification. There is a reward. Just as, as we practice wickedness leads to further wickedness, you practice righteousness, it leads to further righteousness. You know this experientially as well if you've, when you strive in Christ. When you start to see spiritual success and you start to get some spiritual wind in your sails and you start to experience the joys of walking in Christ, you want to guard that. You, you protect it because you rejoice in the freedom that comes in your conscience and you rejoice in the peace that you have with God and you rejoice in the joy it is in communion with the truth and with God's people and you rejoice in that nearness to God. That is a work of righteousness cultivated in the heart. Paul says here, again, we're under this new master. By the way, I just wanted to kind of side note here. Sometimes, I understand sometimes, in the pursuit of the Christian life when we are being sanctified, it feels unnatural to move from a, where wickedness seems so natural to us, to move to, to doing right feels unnatural. I remember working with a guy who was a habitual liar, who lied about everything, even things he didn't have to lie about. He would just lie. He just, that was his first natural response to lie. And walking through this thing, you know, and knowing and seeing obvious lies and calling it out is just like, for him, it, it, this felt unnatural to speak the truth. You know, he had to reshape his mind, reshape his understanding, had to, had to work at delighting in truth so that the practice of righteousness felt natural to him. We're called out of darkness, used to living this one way, and now we're coming under the Lord Jesus Christ. Certain practices may feel unnatural. But as uh, committing ourselves to the practice of Christ and following after Christ, the pursuit of righteousness will become natural, just like any learned skill. Man, I, I wasn't exactly, I don't know about you, but I wasn't exactly a superstar the first time I rode my bike. Uh, I have a few childhood scars to show you to demonstrate that. Didn't understand the power of momentum. Certainly learned the strength of gravity real quick. And in the midst of that, you, you know what it's like having to learn a skill. How to learn how to balance yourself on a bike, how to manage speed, how to work uphill and downhill, how to turn, how to stop. You know, all those things you learn that to a point where before you know it, you're jumping over cars. You know, you are, you are using advanced skills because you have grown in comfortability with that same thing in the, in the pursuits of righteousness. 
At times, it may feel awkward to do what's right and only shows you how our own flesh was bent to evil. But as we yield, the fruit is this. As Paul says, present your members to righteousness resulting in sanctification, clear conscience, holiness, righteousness, ruling and reigning in you and among you. And this is the, now the idea that Paul builds from, the rest, from verse 20 through 23. He starts building on this idea of the reward. What was the reward of unrighteousness? What was its value? And what is the value of righteousness? And what's the reward of righteousness? Because they are two different paths, both on offering a reward, but those rewards aren't even nearly the same. Righteous, uh, unrighteousness promises a reward. It's the only reason why... You know, the battle against sin is so hard because sin promises a reward, an immediate reward, a pleasure immediately. But righteousness also promises a reward. And that's the theme that Paul builds on right here. He wants us to see this. And he wants us to understand what reward we're working for. Because we have a new master and a new direction in our life, and our new direction is led to right, is heading to righteousness. This leads us to the last point we see in verses 20 through 23. The last thing he wants us to remember is, remember what is and is not profitable. Think carefully about what has real value, wickedness or righteousness. And that's what he contrasts here. I think this is what's important for us to think about. In the moment of temptations and trials and difficulties, when we are being swayed to one direction or another, we should be asking, what is the reward system we're working by? What are we seeking after? And are we seeking the more profitable things? Notice what he says. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regards to righteousness... Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He contrasts the two ways. And this is really what he's been arguing from 15 through the end here. There are only two paths. The path of righteousness, where the master is sin, or the path of righteousness, where the master is righteousness. The path of life with the master of righteousness. These are the two paths. Notice what he brings out, the first path, the corruption of the first path. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, in this phrase, you were free in regard to righteousness. What is he saying there? You were, when we were engaged in sin, we lived it up. So he's saying. When you were under sin, you lived it up. You gave in freely. And this phrase, you were free in regard to righteousness, he's not saying there was no consequence. What he was saying is you didn't even think about righteousness. When you were consumed with evil, when you were consumed under the master of sin, when it ruled and dominated in your life, you gave it in freely. 
You freely enjoyed it, freely engaged in it. All of your members were freely engaged into it. It carried you along and you willingly yielded to it. Like a sailboat with its sails, and the wind hit it, the sails filled with that wind, and the boat went wherever the wind took it. It's the idea with sin. Sin came and it ruled as a master, and it ruled in such a way that you freely gave yourself over and it carried you along. To which, verse 21, he asked the question, when this was happening, when you're just carried along, for what benefit? What were you doing it for? What was the reward? What was the benefit that you were deriving from this thing? You know, basically, and he's speaking now to believers, you and I who are believers, when we look back at those things, the very things that we were ashamed of, that we uh, cower in and say, yeah, I, I used to be that way. What was our benefit at that time? And the answer, he says, the outcome of those things is death. What was the benefit? It was no benefit. It only led to death. It was a temporary benefit. Whatever the benefits were, it was useless. To what ends? What value was that thing? Think about that. Sin always comes offering a temporary reward, a temporary pleasure. What was it? What was the benefit of pursuing sin? I mean, it, isn't this, uh, as we have uh, the mind of Christ now ruling in our hearts and minds, and we're in the moment of, of temptation, the moment of trial, and uh, you're being tempted to engage in some evil, at that moment, stop and ask yourself this question, what is the reward I'm seeking? Is it honor? Is it a temporary pleasure? Is it a treasure, an earthly treasure? What is it that I'm about to get here that is so valuable to me that I'm willing to transgress the law of God, transgress righteousness? What am I actually gaining? I thought about this oftentimes in temptation. That is what comes, some kind of momentary pleasure for a moment of happiness only to lead to guilt and shame. A temporary pleasure that privately gets to enjoy, but publicly, if made known, would bring great dishonor, shame. An earthly treasure, maybe, some kind of possession that I want, an earthly honor, a great name, a reputation, but all of those things would be temporary under the pursuit of sin. I was thinking about this. There are many historical figures we could point to, men and women who've lived, who lived it up in their transgression. Remember, um, again, I don't use any of these illustrations of people as out of jealousy or anything. It's just simply an illustration for us. I was thinking about Wilt Chamberlain, the man who, a famous basketball player, still even has the record for the most points scored in one basketball game, 100 points. man who uh, was successful in his heydays in the 60s and 70s once boasted that he had 20,000 romantic partners. Having lived up his life, that he gave himself over in the greatest ways. Successful basketball player, Died in 1999. Died alone. Never married. Died bitter. 
He wrote a book in 1997 entitled, Who's Running the Asylum? Subtitled, Inside the Insane World of Sports Today. To which he wrote, complaining that he didn't get paid nearly as much as that, the superstars of that day. Surprised what his present book would be if he wrote it today. He wrote that in 1997, two years before he died. He died in, at the age of 63. 63 years he got to live it up. 63 years he lived it to the fullest, engaged in wickedness. To the very question be, to what benefit? What is the value? What did he actually gain in a life that's fully engaged in all that wickedness? Temporary pleasures, bitterness, and emptiness. He doesn't take his houses with him. He doesn't take his money with him. He doesn't take a reputation with him. And in fact, the reputation he does take probably isn't going to help him in the next life. What was the benefit he received? Well, he received death. And then comes the terrifying expectation of judgment. Now comes the having to give an account for his actions. Jesus, multiple times in the book of Matthew, describes judgment in this way. It's a place of outer darkness and a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place separated from the grace of God, separated from God himself, and under uh, darkness and a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why weeping and gnashing of teeth? Because I think there would be an overactive conscience at that time. Awareness that one has been separated from God. Awareness that one is under judgment. Awareness that one is now living under their fears. Why that phrase, in outer darkness? Because you're separated from the light altogether. Separated from the grace of God. Even the common grace of God. Remember once somebody said to me, "Eh, I'm going to live it up. I don't care about hell. I'm going to go there with my friends. We're going to play cards together. My thought was, well, good luck in the dark. Not exactly. In fact, I will add to the terror of it. I want these things. I want the joy. I want time with my friends. I want to, and I can't even enjoy the very things I want, even if they're right there next to me, because it's not an environment where the common grace of God even exists. All of that is taken away is under judgment. But you contrast judgment with the other side. What's the other side? And there are three rewards. Verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, notice, you derive your benefits. What's the benefit? Resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. The other path, there are three rewards. There's a new master. There is the reward of sanctification, holiness. And there's a reward of eternal life. If the first master was wicked and destructive, the first master led you to your harm, the second master is good. The second master is generous. That's what he says there in verse 22. You've been freed from sin and enslaved to God. We have a new master ruling us. Think about this, the joys of having God as our master. All that God is, we get to enjoy. Endless wisdom, endless power, endless mind, endless endless creativity, endless generosity, endless love, endless care, endless mercy. All good and wise in his dealings with us and everything, this is the one we serve. I mean, 
was thinking about my own life. And I think my kids get it from me. I have a short attention span. You know, so I just start to play a game. All right, I'm done with that game. Let's go to the next one. Well, think about being in the presence of God, just the endless delights. You will never exhaust the knowledge of God and never exhaust his power, never exhaust the worlds and riches that he has set before us. And if that's not enough, the other result, the benefit resulting in sanctification, be made more holy, to be set apart, to be made more like him, to be restored to that grand and glorious image of which we were once created Designed to be upright before God, reflect being a perfect reflection of His attributes. We were created in the image of God to reflect God. And as we walk in righteousness, we start to reflect that more and more. Our minds are sanctified, our wills are sanctified, our lives are sanctified. We're transformed into His very image and become exactly what He had created us to be. And then the result of that the outcome, eternal life, we get to enjoy that forever. Sins, rewards, and pleasures are temporary. Grace of God is eternal. The rewards of God are eternal, eternal fruits. I mean, this is part of the joy of being in the body of Christ is that we will be eternally together to love one another because you don't want to look back and think anything other. And that we poured out the grace of God towards one another. To which verse 23, Paul states and drives home the point again and reminds us again. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're under grace. We live by the grace of God. We live under this grace, this reward of life. So in any moment of temptation and difficulty, we remind ourselves of this great reward that we receive from God, and we live for that reward. We pursue the greater reward. We pursue the better treasure. We pursue the the eternal treasure, not the temporary one, because we're in Christ. And I think about this in every temptation when sin offers its pleasure it's monopoly money. It's not even a, a real reward. It's, it's fake versus the intrinsic value of righteousness, endless joy, endless peace. So as Paul is laying out in this, we've been called into God's work and we're under grace and the rule of grace rules in our life that we're now on the path of righteousness. There are only two paths. The path of sin leading to death or the path of righteousness leading to life. There are only two paths. You can't walk on both paths. They're, they're antithetical to each other. The two paths are as different as black and white, as dar- darkness and light. They're completely different. Righteousness and unrighteousness are completely different. Two different paths, two different masters, two different results. But here's why I think it's the struggle, why we have a struggle with it in our own sanctification. We want to hold on to the pleasures of sin while having the promises of righteousness. That's our struggle. And then on top of that, false teachers and doctrines of demons say 
That's exactly what you can have. You can have it both. You can have sin, and you can have its rewards, and you can have the benefits of eternal life. Paul is pointing out here, no, these are two different masters, two different roads, two different directions. Cannot have them both. So for us, living under grace, then we remind ourselves of this very thing. I do not go back to my former master. I now follow my new master. And I delight in the way of my new master because I'm under grace. I've been set free from the law. I've been set free from that bondage. I don't have to believe the lies. I can break free of the abusive relationship with sin to follow the good relationship of righteousness because I'm under grace. That's how we work through this particular struggle and sanctification. We remind ourselves of the grace of God that is ruling and reigning within us as we follow our new master. Reminding ourselves of the truth in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the joy is that when we freely and fully give all of our members over to the pursuit of righteousness, God produces holiness within us. 